Hello, my wonderful friends. Welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 54, and it's part two of our series called Processing the Goose. Uh, If you're just dropping in, and this is like your first time here, uh, last month I had the opportunity to attend the Wild Goose Festival here in uh, Hot Springs, North Carolina, and it totally like just blew my mind. There's just so much stuff that I came away thinking about. And so this month, I'm taking the first two episodes, uh, last week and this week, to share what I would say are my two biggest takeaways. And then next week and the following week, I'm going to bring on a couple of guests, and they're going to process some things with me. Uh, One guy is a friend who was at the festival, and another guy is actually one of my favorite teachers and thinkers uh, who leads some sessions at the Goose every year. So, So this month, I guess you could say that we, meaning you and I, are processing the Goose together. And uh, I think it's been a lot of fun last week. Uh, This week is going to be a lot of fun as well. And uh, rather than talk about all the different things, uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject. Go over there, check out how you can support the show. Uh, There's also a closed Facebook group called the What If Project Community, uh, where we have about 50 people in there uh, dialoguing about faith, spirituality, all different walks of life, all different ideas, all different beliefs, everybody's sharing getting along, shocker, surprise, right? We're all getting along, having fun, and learning from each other. I will put those links in the show notes, and uh, you can go over there and you can check it out. So this this is episode 54, like I said, and it's called Disowning God and Taking Off My Evangelical Glasses. Uh, second day of the festival, I got to hear from and meet one of my uh, absolute favorite authors, thinkers, uh, human beings. Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. And a quick Google search will tell you her story a whole lot better than I can. Uh, But real quick, she was a priest in the Episcopal Church uh, before leaving the pulpit to teach religion, world religion at Piedmont College. And she wrote a book called Leaving Church, which details her journey to, uh, through, and then out of full-time parish or church ministry. And her latest book is called Holy Envy. And that one kind of details what she learned about God and faith and religion while teaching Religion 101 to uh, these college students for uh, so many years. So all of her books are super recommended uh, by me anyway. I love them. Uh, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, she's super good. But those are my two, uh, what I would say are my two favorite books that she's that she's written. So Barbara's session was... Uh, It was kind of like an interview where she was being asked questions by someone who had devoured her latest book, uh, Holy Envy. And it was almost like a a live podcast. The guy was doing the interview. He had a pre-release copy of the book in his hand. Um, And even from where I was sitting, which was like a good 50 feet away, I could see the notes, highlights, writing in the margin. Uh, It was a super engaging conversation. He asked uh, questions, pushed back on some of her ideas, and like really just I don't know, I felt like really helped us as listeners come away feeling as if we had just had a conversation with Barbara ourselves. So it was really good. Uh, She said a ton of amazing things, and I could go on forever about the stuff she talked about and the book as well. Uh, But I want to share with you something that she said, uh, both at the event and also in the book, that has really had me, my mind and my heart, uh, just churning these past couple of weeks uh, thinking about it. She talked about this idea of uh, disowning God and said that there came a, a point in her life where she saw the need to disown God and come to the realization that as a Christian, 
she didn't own God. And that Christianity doesn't own God either. And so disowning God then for Barbara, and for the sake of our our conversation here, doesn't mean losing faith in God. But instead, having faith or maybe gaining faith in a God that can't be boxed in by any one religion or any one group of people. And so that made me think a whole lot about my uh, upbringing. Because really, that's like the exact opposite of everything I was taught for the first 30-ish years or so of my life. I've shared my story in here before, but I grew up in a pretty theologically conservative setting uh, that ran on the fuel of what I would call the uh, evangelical Christian narrative, which in short, and there's varying degrees of this, varying degrees of intensity, depending on the church, the denomination, whatever, but the general narrative is that God created humanity, uh, humanity sinned, God doesn't like sin, sin's got to be punished. Jesus raised his hand, said, I'll take the punishment, punish me, not them. Uh, so God laid all the sins of humanity on Jesus on the cross. Uh, I raised my own hand in church or whatever. I declare that I believe that. I say the sinner's prayer. Uh, I go to heaven. I don't believe that. And, and I go to hell. It's it's very simple narrative, very simple process, very black and white. Uh, that message and a lot of the teachers, pastors, books, and all that, that taught me that message as simple and as much as I've heard it all throughout my life, they inevitably taught me that Christianity, uh, evangelical Christianity in particular, owns God, right? Because Muslims don't believe those things. Uh, Buddhists don't believe them. Atheists, Hindus don't believe those things. Those people are the goats of Matthew 25, that the Son of Man says he will send to the fires, while the people like me and maybe you who believe the right things, uh, we're the sheep, And we're the ones that will be welcomed into heaven. In other words, it's like it's our way or it's the highway, right? The highway to hell. You need to believe this, live this, embody this narrative in your life or else there's really like no hope for you. You're a depraved human being in some sense of the word. Uh, God cannot so much as muster up the stomach to look at you unless you put your faith in Jesus. And when Jesus then takes up residence in your heart, God can turn to look at you only because he no longer sees you in your sin, but now sees Jesus and his bloody sacrifice that was made on your behalf, and that somehow warms God's heart. But if you don't believe that, and if Jesus then doesn't take up residence in your heart, uh, then God will not turn to look at you, but will cast you away for all of eternity. His back will forever be turned on you. Again, it's our way. You've got to believe this, or the highway to hell. God's table is small, uh, the road is narrow, and only a few will find it. And only only then, only, only if you find the road, uh, only if you believe the right thing, is he going to pull up a chair and make room for you at the table. Right? The only way that you, you get that spot is if you buy into the narrative and believe the right things. The table is small, the road is narrow, if you want a seat, you got to believe the right thing. So I grew up hearing this message. Like I said, various forms, various tones, all throughout Christian school. I went to a Christian school from the 4th through 12th grade. Uh, Christian churches, Sunday school, Christian camps, Christian college, Christian books. Uh, But the funny thing is, what I'm learning in the last few years of my own faith journey is that this really isn't even uh, a very Christian idea. I mean, it's what you're going to hear in a lot of churches on Sunday mornings, 
and at Easter time, but it's not something that was necessarily taught uh, very in, in, intentionally in the early church during the first few centuries. Like this idea of believing in Jesus so you don't go to hell arrived on the scene maybe as early as 400 years after Jesus' death. And so during those first handfuls of centuries, Christianity and the gospel uh, was something that was very, very different. And you can hear more about, like I've talked about that stuff before on the podcast. Um, you can hear more about those other, uh, like that other message or the other messages of Christianity in the early church. Uh, if you go back to like the God's Not Mad series, as well as a few other episodes peppered in over the last year, there's one episode with Brian Zond, we touched on it, uh, Brian McLaren as well. Um, I think William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, mentioned some things as well, but uh, good stuff there. Go listen to it. But anyways, this evangelical narrative like never really, uh, like it never really sat well with me, if I'm being honest. I mean, I preached it. I taught it. Um, I wrote countless theological papers about it in Bible college, seminary. But even so, it never really sat right with me. And whenever I found myself in a, in a position to, you know, quote, share Jesus with somebody or tell them about the gospel and about this narrative of an angry God, you know, in the kindest terms that I could possibly find, my insides would be twitching and turning in knots. And something in me was screaming, no, like something, something is not right here. And, and as I look back on it, I think the reason why my insides would twitch at this idea of God being angry enough to toss someone into an eternal oven for all of eternity is because that's not really what I see in Jesus, who according to the Bible is the perfect representation of God. Like was Jesus a Hitler-esque kind of guy, right? Who like spent his days chucking people into eternal ovens or threatening them with fire? Was he going around yelling, you know, it's my way or the highway to hell? Was the Jesus who called me to forgive my enemies, is he really that incapable of forgiving his own? So that when they show up at the pearly gates one day and he asks them, why didn't you believe in me when you were on earth? And they don't have an answer that he's just going to turn his back on them forever? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I could go through my Bible. I could pull out 150 verses to support the narrative. I know them all. I've got books literally right behind me, systematic theology books. Uh, right behind me on my shelf as we speak that will lay out in fine, neat detail and explain verse by verse why that narrative works. But what I'm sensing in my own journey right now is that when I filter those verses and those theologies, those doctrines, whatever, through the lens of Jesus and the life that he lived, the things that he taught, I can't hold on. I just can't not hold on to the belief or the idea that God's table is small that God is turning his back on people, or that Christianity somehow owns God. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so when Barbara talked at Wild Goose about this idea of disowning God and Christianity not owning God, like she had my undivided attention. Uh, Barbara talked about how consciously and uh, subconsciously we tend to interpret the Bible to meet our own needs. And she said this at, uh, at the festival, but also in her book. She says that, and I'm going to read this quote from the book, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with interpreting the Bible to meet our needs. Okay, there's nothing wrong with this unless we deny that we are doing it. 
as when someone tells me he is not interpreting anything, but simply reporting it as plainly on the page or reporting, sorry, reporting what is plainly on the page. Uh, you've met those kind of people, right? I used to be one of those people. Uh, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, like it's right here in black and white. There's nothing to interpret. Don't overthink it. Just believe it. I remember having this conversation with somebody on Facebook probably about a year ago when uh, I first started up the What If Project. Maybe it was like just before that because I was writing some stuff on a Medium blog uh, and I think I kind of addressed this topic, but it was on Facebook or some, something like that. But anyway, I, I was talking about the, the the this this idea and I remember the person said to me that, you know, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And, and so I said to the person, well, where does it say that? And the person said, well, it says so in black and white, right here, John 14, 6, Jesus is the way. He is the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through him. All of the roads lead to hell. There's nothing left to interpret about that. Now, I knew the verse like the back of my hand. You, you might as well. And in the past, I would have certainly backed that claim, defended her, said she was 1,000% correct. I even preached sermons in various churches that more or less said the same thing, maybe not quite as bluntly, uh, but the same message was there. But let me ask you, is that really what it says? Like, let's go back and look. John 14, 6, I'm going to read it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, one of the reasons why I remain fascinated with the Bible, and uh, I got this from Barbara because she said this at the, at the festival and I thought it was gold, uh, and it put words on what I've been feeling. Uh, but one of the, the reasons why I am so fascinated by the Bible is because it very often says very little about the things I've been taught that it says. And it very rarely, if ever, says what I want it to say, think it should say, or think it does say. Instead, the Bible has proven to me time and time again to have its own almost mysterious voice that kind of bubbles beneath the surface of the words that I see on the page. And this passage, I think, is a perfect example. Because unlike what my friend thought, unlike what I was taught and even used to teach, the verse says nothing about heaven, right? Let's go back and read it again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Nothing there about heaven. Nothing there about hell. It says nothing about other religions being wrong. Nothing about my religion being right. It says nothing about Christianity. Nothing about other religions missing the Jesus boat. It doesn't even say anything about these other religions, right? In the conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples, uh, both before and after the verse, this topic of other religions it's not even on the table. Nobody's even addressing this. And it certainly says nothing about who goes where when they die. Instead, these are what I would call assumptions. And we come to these assumptions when we read these particular words of Jesus and other words of Jesus through a pair of evangelical glasses that are made with the traditional evangelical lenses where the main narrative is that you need to believe in Jesus or you will go to hell when you die because it's his way or the highway. I am the way, Jesus said. Therefore, all other ways we then assume lead to hell. But my question is, for you and for myself, is what if this isn't what Jesus is saying? Like, is it possible to take off these evangelical glasses for just a moment 
look at this verse without any of those kinds of filters. I mean, I wish we could take off all the filters altogether, right? Uh, but I don't think that's possible. I don't think we can approach any text, whether it's the Bible or the, the morning news, without some kind of filtered glasses over our mind's eye. I think we all wear some sort of filters over our eyes when we, when we read the Bible. So that emphasis is placed uh, on various thoughts, maybe ideas, uh, verses, depending on what our experiences are. Like in short, we all cherry pick verses. Even Jesus did it. Uh, I could point out some examples, but that'll lead us down a rabbit trail. That's an episode for another day. We all cherry pick verses. But, but for now, let's just at the very least try to kind of lay these glasses aside for just a moment and look at this verse. And when I do that, when I look at John 4, 16, or John 14, 6, uh, freshly, without those glasses on, I begin to wonder, like maybe Jesus's words aren't as exclusive as they are inclusive. Like maybe they're not so much about weeding people out as they are about bringing people in. Brian McLaren once uh, said that with these words in John 14, 6, Jesus wasn't so much trying to stand in the way of the Father, as if he were some kind of an ogre, you know, who only lets certain people over the bridge. But he's declaring that he is the way to the Father. So he's not standing in the way to the Father. Uh, he is the way to the Father. He is the light on the path that lights the way. He is the path. In other words, the way that he lived his life uh, is the way of life that leads to the Father, that leads directly to the heart of the Creator, to the heart of the universe. And so whenever someone, anyone, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, hate-mongering, bigot, acts in a way that is even remotely loving towards the outcast, forgiving of an enemy, a challenge of the status quo, an attempt to make the table of God bigger, an attempt to welcome more people into God's kingdom, whenever someone acts in these ways, they're living according to the way of Christ. And therefore, they have arrived at the feet of their creator. That's a different way. Right? That, that is a much different way to look at John 14, 6. Uh, much, much different. Definitely not uh, what many of us might consider to be the norm, especially if you came from a background like mine. Uh, rather than look at it through a traditional exclusive lens, right? that was a look at it through a more progressive and inclusive lens. And I know that this interpretation or this kind of thinking is frowned upon in some churches, denominations, especially with this particular verse, uh, which is one that is highly esteemed and, and referenced a lot in the evangelical world. Right? We're told that we need to evangelize the nations, bring them the gospel, uh, show them the flaws of their own beliefs and their own religions, convince them that Jesus is the only way to heaven and all other roads lead nowhere good. I was raised to believe and think that we as Christians own God. And so I know firsthand that this idea of disowning God, talking about a more inclusive way to live in the world, is super threatening to people who are raised to believe in an exclusive God who has created only one path to heaven, many paths to hell. I get it. I understand it's threatening. But here's the thing, for me anyways. I just can't help but think in this new what I, what I think is profound way. And, and I should say it's not new in the sense that no one has ever thought about it before. Like this isn't some kind of revolutionary idea that I or Barbara Brown Taylor or somebody else randomly cooked up because believe it or not, this kind of thinking has actually been around the church since the first couple of centuries of Christianity. Especially when the church was planted primarily in the Eastern, more contemplative parts of the world, 
as opposed to the Western, more rational and intellectual parts of the world. Even so, although it's not new to the world, it's new to me, right? And maybe it's new to you as well. And so I can't help but think about it and talk about it. Like, I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm not here to disrupt the status quo. I'm not here to cause controversy. I'm not here to make people mad. If people get mad about this stuff, that's their own issue. That's not my issue. Rather, I talk about this stuff because I've seen a glimpse of something wonderful and hopeful and beautiful that I can't unsee. And so I've got to talk about it. And I will talk about it. And something deep within me has to push back on thoughts and ideas that are contrary to it. I feel kind of like the apostles in Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 20, when they said, We cannot stop thinking, sorry, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Can't stop talking about it. Uh, That verse, uh, evangelicals love to use that verse. I used to use that verse all the time. Uh, And they love to use it to justify evangelism and mission efforts. And I know that because I was raised in that world. I remember at one time uh, in an evangelism class uh, in college, someone asked a professor about people being offended by our message, by having to believe in Jesus in order to get to heaven. And the professor pulled out this verse and he very convincingly said, uh, we talk about it because we've seen something wonderful and we can't stop talking about it. And I agree. And I used to use that verse to talk about the angry God uh, who Jesus came to die for in your place so that he would forgive you and you could go to heaven, all that kind of stuff. But I don't see that now. Now I see that verse and I, I use it because I want to talk about this loving God that I have experienced in, in my life. I just can't stop talking about it. I love how Barbara puts it in her book. Uh, here's another quote. She says, Once I began to ask more of my tradition, uh, Christianity, than the narrative of exclusive salvation and everlasting triumph, I began to search for counter-narratives in the scriptures that sounded more like Jesus to me. And so that's what I find myself doing these days with verses like John 14, 6. I, I spend sometimes days, weeks at a time, staring at a single verse or passage or story that I grew up hearing explained through the lens of uh, one single exclusive narrative. And I'm, I'm beginning to like learn how to turn the diamond ever so slightly. So the light hits it from a different angle, shows me a more inclusive counter-narrative that maybe I never saw before. A narrative that is less like the angry God sending people to hell. A narrative that is more like the life that Jesus lived. And I'll tell you, this is hard stuff. Uh, I was emailing Barbara a few weeks ago. I said last week that she has been kind enough to I'll respond to some of my questions. And I said to her that sometimes it feels like a gigantic wrestling match with my brain, like just to wrap my mind around the possibility that there might be another way to read or think about a particular verse or passage or story that I grew up hearing about in Sunday school, church, Christian school, college, seminary, yada, yada, yada. Like sometimes it's so hard to shift my mind out of that evangelical gear I'll take off those evangelical glasses because when I finally get to a mental state where I take the glasses off for a fresh look at the verse of the story, I feel blind. Like all of a sudden, everything I've ever known about this particular verse or passage has almost disappeared. And I feel like I'm left to like mope around in the dark, you know, looking for clues as to what this story, what this verse might possibly have to say. It's a hard process sometimes. And it feels like I'm starting at square one. Everybody has a lot of questions for me. I don't have a lot of answers, but I love the process. And so back to the the initial point, when I take off my evangelical glasses, squint my eyes, 
Take another look at verses like John 14, 6. I just don't think we as Christians own God. Do I think there's going to be Buddhists in heaven? I do. Do I think there's going to be atheists in heaven? I do. I, I would not be surprised. I probably would be more surprised by who I see there uh, than less surprised, if that makes any sense. I don't know. But I think, I think there's going to be a lot of people there that we might not expect to be there. And I think there's going to be people from varying walks of life. Uh, at the end of the day, I think, I think everybody's going to be there. Let's talk about more verses. Uh, one time in John 10, 16, Jesus was talking about how he is a shepherd and people are the sheep. And he said that I have other sheep that don't belong to this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, there will be one shepherd. Jesus has sheep, he has followers, his people walking according to the way, the truth, and the life that are not part of this fold. He was speaking to his disciples. He was telling them that there were people living according to the way that weren't one of them. Guys, can we grasp what this means? Because what was true 2,000 years ago is true today. Jesus has people today in 2019 living according to his way that are not one of you, that are not one of me. And apparently this was something that the disciples needed to realize and understand. Because another time in Mark chapter 9, these very same disciples came to Jesus they're all alarmed, they're all up in arms, and they're all mad. Because, to quote, this is, the, this is the verse, someone is driving out demons in your name and we told them to stop because he's not one of us. In other words, somebody's walking according to the way. Right? They're doing good in the world. Somebody's healing people. They're restoring life. Someone's doing our work. But Jesus, they weren't one of us. They weren't part of our tribe. They weren't part of our church. They weren't part of our religion. They aren't Christians. And so we told them to stop. And I love Jesus' response. He says, don't stop them. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Now, of course, I'm cherry-picking verses, right? And of course, I'm looking at verses that magnify my point, of the inclusiveness of Jesus, I get it. But my point is that I'm not sure that Jesus is as exclusive as we as Christians have made him out to be. And I'm pretty certain that we as Christians don't own God. I think Christ has sheep in the fold of Buddhism, atheism, Hinduism, on and on the list goes. I think Christ has sheep in various folds all over the planet who are living according to the way, who are living as truth of love and who are living their life hand in hand with their creator even if their idea of the creator or the divine or whatever is much different than yours and mine, I think that the Christ is calling to them. I think they hear his voice. And I think that the universe is headed towards there being one flock with one shepherd, just like Jesus said, where we are all, every single one of us, created in the image of the divine. I'm going to end with this one illustration that I, I got from Richard Rohr. I'm going to try not to botch this up. Uh, but he asks us to imagine a giant river, right? It's flowing, it's roaring, it's breathtaking, it's wonderful, it's amazing. Now imagine that you and a friend walk up to that river after a long, hot, humid hike. You reach into your backpack, uh, you each pull out a cup, you each fill up your cup with water, and you take a drink. You then look at your friend, right? And you declare, my cup of water 
is the only thing on earth that can quench your thirst. Your friend looks at you like you're insane and declares you're wrong. Definitely not. Right? My cup of water is the only thing on this earth that can quench your thirst. You and your friend proceed uh, to argue for hours and hours and hours about whose cup of water has the ability to quench each other's thirst. All the while the river that contains a never-ending supply of thirst-quenching water flows beside you. As Christians, whatever religious background you may be, I think we got to stop trying to jam our cup of water down people's throats or insist that the world drink from our little cup and recognize that there's a roaring river of thirst-quenching water running through the universe that is saturated with Christ, saturated with love, saturated with the loving spirit that breathed the universe into existence. And man, I think that spirit is more than capable of filling your cup, your neighbor's cup, and quenching people's thirst in various kinds of ways. And so that's a wrap for episode number 54. Uh, if it leaves you with more questions than answers, like I said, join the club. Uh, the last thing on earth that this is is easy stuff. Um, this inclusive way of thinking um, does not answer every question, does not tie up the topic in a little bow, uh, does not put God in a box. Um, it blows the box up. And uh, it's, 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 it's hard, like I said earlier. It's threatening if you come from a background like mine or something similar. Um, there's a lot of questions. I've got questions. I'm sure that you do too. Uh, so my prayer for you is to wrestle with those questions deeply. And uh, may you wrestle with them, looking at them through uh, no other lens than the lens of Christ's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. May that be the only filter that you look at your faith through. Uh, much love to you, my friends, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.